Our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. Now, in the, in the beginning of this, this text, Paul starts off by giving Timothy a warning. And as we'll soon read, he, he says, There will be terrible times in the last days. Now, there's been a, a fascination with the last days, with the end times, forever, throughout all of Christendom. And, and that makes sense, because after the last days comes eternity. After the last days comes a suffer, an end to suffering and a life forever in joy. And so rightly or, or wrongly, the church has spent a lot of time trying to decipher when we are in the end times and, and what that's going to look like. And we know that the end times are supposed to be hard. And we know that they're going to be difficult because people will still be sinful. But often getting caught up in the end times rhetoric can just serve to distract us from what's currently going on in our church, in our lives, and in our world. And that is a particular danger with this text because Paul is clearly writing to Timothy about situations that are currently going on in his church at the time of the writing of this letter. So as we read this text, let us recognize that the warnings given by Paul are not just for those who will live in a future time, but are for us today as well. And let us also recognize that the hope and the truth that is true for those who will live in a future time That hope and that truth, they are true for us as well. May God speak to us through his word this morning. We read the word of the Lord, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed with all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis and Yambras opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far. Because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. May you perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. A friend of mine once told me a story of the santal tree at his uncle's house. Now, I, I didn't know what a, what a santal was. He told me it's a tropical fruit that is natural to Southeast Asia, though you can find it in places like India and Australia now as well. 
It has an outer peel that's, that's somewhat like that of an orange, but it's not as thick. And the flesh of the fruit is, is pretty sour. But the seeds are covered in a white cotton-like threads that are very sweet, and so it is sometimes called a cotton fruit. Now, my friend told me of an afternoon visiting his uncle's house, and his uncle had gone down into their santal tree and brought back a whole basket of this fruit. They looked delicious, nice, and round, plump, and their coloring was excellent. But as they cut into the santal, they found that though they looked fantastic on the outside, each one was rotten, smelly, inedible on the the inside. The whole basket was that way. Even though the tree looked fully healthy, my friend's uncle had an expert come and take a look at the tree. And so again, the tree looked fantastic. It looked in in great health. It looked like santal trees are supposed to look like, but they found the disease had settled in the roots of the tree. And because of this disease, any fruit born by the tree, though it looked good on the outside, would be rotten to the core on the inside. In our text this morning, Paul is warning Timothy of people who are diseased like this santal tree who look like this diseased santal tree. They look good. They look right on the outside, but they are rotten on the inside. Paul writes that the men he is warning Timothy about, have, they have the form of godliness, the appearance of godliness. They look really good. They look good. They, they look like Christians are supposed to look like. They sound like what Christians are supposed to sound like. They dress the way the Christians are supposed to dress. They listen to the music Christians are supposed to listen to. They consume the things Christians are supposed to consume. They've got that, that uh, subscription to Pure Flix, no doubt. They stay away from the things that Christians aren't supposed to associate with. They don't drink and smoke. You know, they, they keep their language clean. They look like they have everything together from the outside. But the problem is that they were forms without substance. They're complete fakes. They were the fruit of a diseased santal tree. They looked good on the outside, but they were rotten on the inside because they were denying the power of the gospel. They were denying the power of the gospel. It's easy to acquire the appearance of godliness that's ascribed to all of the right subcultural expressions and customs to dress the right way and to talk the right way and at least while in public, abstain from the right things and yet be denying the power. Denying the power of godliness. Denying the power of the gospel by the quality of our lives, the way that we live our lives. These guys in the church in Ephesus were saying, we can do it. That was their message. We can do it. We don't need help. Look how awesome we are. You can see how awesome we are, how we're doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing. You can tell how fantastic human beings we are. We can keep all of the traditions that we need to. Look at how well we perform. Look at how good we are. See how we meet the expectations set before us? Why 
Would we need any help, they ask. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need Jesus? Our text continues to say that they will take their terrible, self-serving theology, theology that ignores the gospel and focuses on how good we can be, how fantastic we are, how much we should love ourselves. It ignores the truth of the gospel, and they will take it, and they will invade the homes of the weak and the gullible. They will take theology that that twists the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, and they will present it to people who are in a place in life where they are drowning. And they will cling to any straw, any glimpse of hope or escape from their current situation. As I pondered where I had seen this type of thing in my lifetime, a few examples came to mind. In the early 2000s, a church movement began to take shape And it classified itself as the emergent church. This movement sought to challenge church norms and to help the church be more relevant in a a Western world that is quickly becoming less and less Christian. Some streams of the movement were beneficial. Some were mostly harmless. But a particular branch, led by the likes of Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, and Doug Padgett, were downright heretical. This stream was known as the Revisionists. They are theologically very liberal and openly questioned church doctrine so that culture spoke into and informed scripture and not letting scripture inform culture. They are excellent communicators. And by their words, books, and sermons, many left the faith found in the Bible and joined a movement bent towards making the Bible say, what they wanted it to say, the emerging church. Our text this morning talks about how these spewers of lives would invade homes, and and what better way to invade a home than through the television, the media that a home consumes? I was watching a video of two so-called televangelists, Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland on the Believer's Voice of Victory Network. What a name. From Network, by the way, the Believer's Voice of Victory Network. And they were discussing Jesse's need to upgrade his current private jet. You see, they argued a man of God can't ride with the people. He can't ride with regular people. He can't ride in the, you know, in, in, in the back of, of a regular plane. Because the people that they would be riding with are are constantly bombarding them with prayer requests, with attention. There there are too many people, too too many noises going on, too much distraction that they are unable to hear what God is saying to them. I suppose they also figure that the altitude gets them a little bit closer to God. I'm not really sure. I'm I'm reading that in there. But but there seems to be a bit of that element as, as, as they're talking, right? They... See, they, they, don't, they don't get their words from the Lord from Scripture. They, they, they hear an audible voice. This is what the Lord told me audibly, they say. That's where they get their direction. Copeland even compared flying commercial to getting into a long tube filled with demons. Think about that for a minute. 
Think about that for a minute. Think about what he's saying about the rest of us. Think about what he's saying about our neighbor. Think about what he's saying about the mission of Jesus Christ. Who did Jesus hang out with? It wasn't no private jet, I'll tell you that. Who was Jesus hanging out with? His neighbor. Those who were unacceptable, those who were populating a tube full of demons. Think of the ignorance of that comment, the brass of that comment. And so these men, they urged their listeners to give them an obscene amount of money so that Jesse could upgrade from his current private jet to a bigger and better one. And man, people believe them. People believe them. People follow these men. They follow these televangelists. They follow these revisionists. Paul writes that these these people that are doing the following, they're, they're immature people who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Their consciences, their consciences, man, were burdened. And thus they gave ready ears to imposters who promised to ease their guilt, their unconfessed sin, stood between them and God, and it made their reasoning faulty. Their sins, like an especially virulent disease, the flu, left them vulnerable to worse diseases. Their attempts, right, the attempts of the guilty and the gullible to ease their consciences through anything but the truth of the gospel, expose themselves to worse faults and folly. How sad is that? Our heart should break for those who follow lies over truth. People who look for freedom in chains. But as Paul writes in our text this morning, the folly of the false teachers will be clear to everyone. He brings up Yannis and Yambras, and though their names are not recorded in the Exodus texts, we know from other texts that these are the advisors of Pharaoh. The advisors of Pharaoh when, when Moses was asking that his people be let go. In the beginning, they were able to mimic a few of the miracles that Moses performed. Moses turned Aaron's staff into a snake, and so they turned their staffs into snakes. And although Aaron's snake consumed theirs... They had been able to duplicate his miracle, his work. But as time went on and the plagues got worse and worse, Giannis and Yambres were no longer able to duplicate the miraculous signs of God because they could not compete. Their folly became evident for all to see, and it was clear that they were not to be followed. And the same will happen to the false leaders of today. Though there are places where the lies seem to be winning, where preachers deny the truth of Scripture and preach another gospel, and where the charlatans promise blessings in exchange for money. But they will not last. And their folly, their failure, their their swerving from the truth will be clear to everyone. As Abraham Lincoln once said, You can fool all people some of the time. And you can fool some people all the time. 
But you can't fool all people all the time. And though their their audience may not be as big, or their reach as far as the leaders of the emergent church or the narcissistic televangelists, there are people in our churches today who are taking on the appearance of godliness but denying the cross its power. And they are no less dangerous. They too can lead people astray. They too can influence lives and hearts. And they aren't doing these works. They aren't looking like members of the church because it is their intention to please God. They are doing them, as we read in our text this morning, because they have become lovers of self. The story has become about them. They have taken on the form, the appearance of godliness, so that they can show others how great they are. Not so that grace and glory and the power of God would be proclaimed in the life of a helpless sinner. And when the love of God is replaced with the love of self, all sorts of vices inevitably follow. We can talk ourselves into anything, and we can justify just about everything. We, we abuse grace because we don't think we need it. When we place the love of self over the love of God, we believe that we are good enough on our own, that the instructions and desires of God, they no longer matter, and we're consumed with our own desires because we think that we are so good. We think our desires have become good, for we are the ones with the power. And so we get to decide what is right and what is wrong. Paul gives us a list of what happens when we place the love of self over the love of God. Verses 2 to 4 in our text this morning read, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of of God. Man, what a list. What a terrible list. A list of things that we are supposed to avoid. A list of terrible things that take root in us when we become lovers of self. Are we able to avoid these things? How are we doing with avoiding any of the things in this list, with avoiding becoming lovers of self. How are you doing with that? Man, I look at this list, and man, do I see myself there. More than one of these descriptions fits me at varying times in life, varying times of the day, varying times of the hour. And I know, I know that I can struggle to love God more than I love myself. Yes, I I want to love Him more. Yes, is my desire to love Him more. But in practice, how often does my love of self and my love of the things that I want to do, the urge to fulfill my desire, outweigh my desire to submit to God 
and to do what he wants me to do. So what's the difference? What's the difference? If I do, and if if you do, some of the things on this list, then what makes us any better than the horrible men that Paul is telling Timothy to stay away from? What is the difference between us and and Rob Bell and Brian McLaren? Between us and Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland? Between us and Giannis and Yambres? Some 30 years later, after the writing of this text, when the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John, sorry, penned the book of Revelation, he recorded these words to the same Ephesian church that Timothy had served. He writes, But I, the Lord, have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Unless you repent. We distance ourselves from the false prophets, not when we are able to keep ourselves from committing the same sin that they do. But instead, we distance ourselves from the false prophets when we confess our sin and trust Christ to deal with it. Trust that Christ has dealt with it. When we confess, we acknowledge our sinfulness and we rest in the forgiveness that we have been given at the cross. When we confess, we admit that the story isn't about us, but that it's about a God who loves us and who desires to be loved. And so he created a people to love and to love him. But because he wanted to be loved, this people was given the ability to love what they wanted to love. And it wasn't too long before they realized that they were pretty infatuated with themselves. They were pretty infatuated with the idea that they could be like God. That they could be equal with God. The God that created them. And so they loved themselves more than they loved God. And so, and in so doing, they fell into sin. And because of this sin, God could no longer have a relationship with them. He could no longer have fellowship with them. And so he set in motion a plan. For with sin comes consequences. And this people that he loved could never pay even a fraction of of the price that their sin cost. So God sent his son to live a perfect life in their stead. And Jesus did. He, He lived a perfect life for each of us. And then he took all of the sin that mankind had committed and was committing and will ever commit. And he carried it up the hill to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He carried it. To Calvary. And there he died for it. Paying the price that we could not. But he didn't stay dead. For he is God. And so he defeated sin and death by rising again. And through faith in him. Through belief that we needed his work on our behalf. And the faith that he was able to fulfill the plan. That the father had set in motion. When we confess our need for him. Confess The sins that we have committed and he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us.
from all of our unrighteousness. And when we are baptized into this faith, we have put on Christ so that when God sees us, he does not see the filthy sinner that each of us truly is. No, instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so because of Christ, God is able to once again have fellowship with the people he created so that he might have fellowship with them. Because of Christ. In Christ alone. It is not our work that gets us there. It is not our good intentions that get us there. It is solely the work of Jesus Christ. Let that be our testament. Let that be our song. Let us repent of our sin and commit those sins to Christ. He has already paid for them. There's no use hiding them and basking in shame. For he is intimately aware of all of our shortcomings, all of the things that we have done wrong. And he died for each of them. You know, I don't know where you're at in your journey of faith. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord, but, but recently you've been struggling through that relationship. You know, maybe your journey is just beginning and, and some of the concepts that we're talking about this morning are still a bit overwhelming or different or weird or, or strange to you. You know, maybe you aren't sure what you think of this God character and you're not really sure you want anything to do with him. You know, I don't know where you are. But know this. God loves you. And the gospel tells us that there is nothing you can do to earn that love. It has been given to you freely. There is no way for you to prove your worth and your value to the kingdom. For your worth and your value have been proven by the scars on the hands of Jesus. And while sin and the love of self is something that we are going to struggle with, wrestle with until the end of our days, know that there is nothing you can do that will change God's love for you. You can't make him love you more. And you can't make him love you less. Don't listen to the lies of the false prophets who tell you how you can be more appealing to God. Distance yourself from those that twist scripture to fit their own agenda. Let your roots sink deep into the truth of the gospel, the power of God working on our behalf. So that all of the good things that we do is done through Jesus, covered by Jesus, so that we, the fruit that we bear would not be rotten on the inside, but would be fresh, bringing joy and nutrition to all who are blessed by it. That is how we distance ourselves from the false prophets, by recognizing our sin and confessing it to God, and trusting that our salvation is only safe if we trust it to Christ alone.
Amen.